This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Parents look for alternatives when fears of COVID spread and schools closed, and many public schools didn't open the following fall. Private schools reversed a downward trend in enrollments, charter school enrollments went up, and above all, homeschooling expanded and took many new forms. Educational alternatives have been exploding so quickly, we at the Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance, or PEPCHI as we call ourselves, we at PEPCHI decided a year ago to host a conference which would bring together some of the leading figures who were chartering a new terrain in American education. The event was really quite successful. And in fact, we said, okay, let's do it again and see what's going to be happening one year later. And so now we're on the verge of a second conference on September 28th and 29th at the Harvard Kennedy School. And already before the conference has uh, come even close to opening, we've learned that education alternatives are more than just a mere response to the COVID pandemic. Our conference numbers have doubled from where they were a year ago at this point in time, and we're still a month away. And we see a lot of excitement out there. Daniel Hammond is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Oklahoma, and he's been following the growth of alternative models in education for quite some time. He's co-hosting the event with me, and I'm very pleased today to have Daniel on the Education Exchange to discuss some of the highlights of the forthcoming conference and really to ask the question, is this for real or is this a little bit of a bubble? So thank you, Daniel, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here to talk about the conference. Well, Daniel, my, my first uh, reaction to the rapid expansion of homeschooling in 2022 was that this was a one-off that was driven by the pandemic and things will return to normal shortly thereafter. Uh, but now I'm not so sure about that. The title of our conference is Emerging School Models Moving from Alternative to Mainstream. And maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. So I, I just want you, how confident are you that this emerging school model idea is really something other than just a niche phenomenon that's gonna disappear? Well, I think what you spoke about last year's conference, where we had an opportunity to introduce some of these interesting models that seem to be growing, and, and that was great. But I think this year, what we're trying to do is move the ball forward a little bit to, to actually address that question. So uh, when you look at micro schools, hybrid homeschools, different forms of, of virtual schooling, how 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 common are these new, more personalized models? How available are they to, to different families? This year, I think one of the things that we'll be doing at the conference is not just talking to individuals who are creating innovative models, but also looking at some of the recent research that's been done. So there is some evidence when you look, for example, at micro schools. Um, some some are saying that maybe there may be as many as a million students who are in micro schools. And I think, you know, there's some there's some questions about that data and how accurate it is. And so I think we're we're going to take a, a deeper dive into it to actually determine how many students are in micro schools and what you know, what are the outcomes like for students who are who are attending these schools. And so I think we have a, a real opportunity to to try to advance what we know about this and and figure out a little bit more about whether this is just something maybe that's niche or 
whether it's really a, a whole new area that's really dramatically transforming the educational landscape. Well, we are fortunate to have two uh, very prominent political figures as our keynote speakers, uh, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who has played a major role in expanding school choice in Oklahoma, and Florida's educational commissioner, Manny Diaz, who's playing a major role in expanding school choice opportunities in that well-known state. So uh, can you tell me anything about our keynote speakers? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Paul, I think both have been incredibly focused on emerging school models and educational innovation. Both have have made that a priority. Uh, in Oklahoma, of course, uh, this past year, uh, the state passed the Oklahoma Parental Choice Tax Credit Act, uh, which is uh, an interesting uh, uh, school choice policy. So essentially, uh, any any family that's earning uh, $75,000 or less uh, is eligible to receive 75 a tax credit of $7,500 per child uh, if they're to attend a, a private school, a micro school, or um, uh, even a, a private hybrid school. Uh, and even uh, families that are earning between $150,000 to $225,000 are eligible for a $6,500 tax credit per child. So it's a it's a new law that I think a lot of it'll kick in uh, in fall, and I think a lot of families are considering it. And of course, it had potentially could have a, a major impact on uh, different forms of emerging school models. So, what do you think is driving the expansion of this uh, educational alternative idea? I, I think it's it's fair to say that it hasn't gone away. And and is it is is it you know, are people still afraid of COVID? Uh, are they afraid of violence at school? Are they object to, uh, are they objecting to what's being taught in school? What what are the forces at, at work here? Do you think what's the most important thing that's going on? Yeah, I, I think obviously it's really easy to say anything new that's happening now in education is just a direct result of what happened during the pandemic. But I I, I think in this case there is some some merit to that that. During the pandemic, a lot more families started looking at personalized small group models of education, and that's what a lot of the a lot of the different emerging models are. And I think when families experimented with these during the pandemic, a lot of them stayed. A lot of startups were able to expand and reach out to an even greater number of families. And it doesn't appear to be going away. There, there definitely seems to be a lot of momentum around it now. There. You know, with that said, there still are some major questions about how far reaching some of these models can be. So if you take something like a hybrid homeschool, well, that requires to be a to by definition to be a hybrid homeschool. The parent has to be homeschooling two or three days a week, uh, whereas on the other two or three days, the child is going to a brick and mortar. So how many families I mean, you think about uh, families that are double income or maybe single parent households, uh, how many families can actually participate in these types of uh, personalized emerging models? So I think, you know, that those are some of the questions I think we're going to grapple with uh, at the conference and try to understand a little bit better. So this hybrid homeschooling is a little bit confusing to me. I never quite am sure whether this means that it's half online and half not online or is it half in a brick and mortar? So what, what's the definition of hybrid homeschooling? Well, we have uh, Eric Waren 
from Kennesaw State who will be at the conference. I think he's the um, the uh, somewhat of a hybrid homeschool guru. I think he even coined the term. And I, and my understanding, the way he defines it is, is that um, hybrid homeschooling is where you have uh, a child attending a brick and mortar school two to three days a week. That could be a public or a private school. And then on uh, the other two or three days a week, the parents are uh, homeschooling the child. So I think that that is his definition. I think there are some instances where hybrid homeschooling is also mixed with some kind of uh, virtual environment, but it it definitely tends to be more of a uh, of a case where the the child is attending a brick and mortar school and then being homeschooled on the other days. Well, of course, this almost seems like impossible to put together because on the one side there are homeschoolers who say we want to homeschool our child, and this is not homeschooling their child; they're sending their child to school. And on the other hand, you've got schools out there who say we want a child five days a week. So how how are these? How can these two different concepts be merged together? Are, are there actually schools willing and parents willing to cooperate in this kind of a way? Well. That seems to be the case. So if you, uh, again, Eric Warren's going to present his data, and I think what he'll show is that hybrid homeschools are growing uh, not only in the private sector, but also there's some cases now in the public sector. So actually last year at the conference, we hosted um, a leader of a, of a public, really the nation's first public hybrid homeschool out of uh, Dallas Independent Public School District. And they were operating a, a so-called hybrid homeschool where students would attend school two or three days a week and uh, then the parents would homeschool on the other days. So I think there's a, some definitely some evidence out there that some families are quite interested in this in this model of education and willing to uh, kind of share some of the responsibility with schools and to work with schools to to make it happen. But I think you're right. I mean there's 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 definitely some challenges to trying to pull this off. Uh, especially if parents, homeschool families often have a very, uh, they have a very good idea of how they want to educate their children and what they want to do with their children. So sharing some of that responsibility, particularly with the, with the homeschool crowd, um, you can see where there might be some conflicts there. So um, yeah, that, I think these are the, these are exactly the kinds of questions that I think we'll be able to dig into. Well, then there's this micro schooling concept and micro schools, as I understand it, are somewhat different from hybrid homeschooling. So what is distinctive about micro schooling? And it makes me always feel like I'm being stuck in a small room somewhere. So what, what is a micro school? Yeah, well, I, I think the micro schoolers would would reject the stuck in a small room idea. I think maybe they might even argue that it's 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 the opposite. I think the key thing is with micro schools is it's going to be a very small group. Oftentimes it'll be um, multi-age groups as well. So you'll have uh, maybe a, a school of uh, say 15, an entire school of 15 students. And again, multiple age groups, uh, very personalized learning. And I think that's that's what dis really at the end of the day, what distinguishes a, a micro school is the number of students, the level of personalization that, they, that the schools try to foster. And then they're also um, obviously not going to be at a traditional brick and mortar, but they may hold school in a library or they may hold school in people's homes or in a community center 
or churches or diff or a mix of those places. And so also where it actually, where schooling actually occurs is quite different than a typical brick and mortar. And I know a lot of, uh, a lot of micro schools are also um, just out in the community doing a lot of activities and events and, and combining that with um, also traditional instruction as well. So I, I think those are some distinguishing features. Well, this does remind me of the Little Red Schoolhouse. My my mother many, many years ago taught in an all grade uh, elementary school. Uh, it was they had she had second graders and she had eighth graders. And I, I guess the older kids taught the younger kids. Is that what we're is that basically what it is? It's it's reinventing the Little Red Schoolhouse. Well, I I think there's definitely some of the same dynamics that are occurring where you have uh, different age groups together in the same room, working together in different ways. Older kids might be uh, assisting uh, younger children in some instances like they did in the past. I, I think one of the key differences with micro schools compared to the Little Red School House is that they're going to obviously be much more likely to leverage different types of technology to um, to deliver instruction. I think a lot of micro schools will, they'll spend time in person with the children, but then they also have different types of technology and different apps and different tools that they're using to, to try to uh, deliver uh, education to these students. Because of course, the one with one of the big focuses being on personalization, um, what, if you have one, say one instructor working with 10 to 15 students in a micro school, well, there's going to be lots of different interests that they're trying to serve. And one of the ways that they do that is by using a lot of technology in many cases. Well, one of our sessions is being devoted to online learning or virtual education. And this is an area that's really come under heavy criticism since the pandemic. A lot of parents said, no more of that. I am tired of having my child learn online. They're not learning anything. And especially little children are having a lot of difficulties. And there's a lot of research out there that also raises serious questions about how much learning does take place when uh, students are trying to learn over the internet. And yet we're going to sponsor a session on online learning. So uh, is there conditions under which this approach can actually work? Yeah, so I, I, I think with this session, what we're what we're trying to do is is address that very question. So what are the what are the conditions necessary for success? So I think if you talk to uh, educators across the country, uh, whether it's in the private or the public sector, all of them, it's very rare um, that you that you meet someone who says who doesn't say that these these models are are here to say. So everyone kind of sees a place for full-time virtual school, but at the same time, everyone also understands that the learning outcomes have pretty been pretty consistently poor. Um, I think the the study is the studies that exist on full-time virtual school show uh, root, nearly nearly all of them show really poor outcomes for students who attend full-time virtual schools. Uh, so I think there are some interesting and innovative models out there that have bucked the trend. And so I think that's what we're trying to do with this session is to understand, well, with these full-time virtual schools that are out there that have bucked the trend, what are they doing that's different from the other models? And I, I think our goal is if if the contention is full-time virtual school is here to stay, well, we have to figure out what are the what are the ways to make that a, a, a successful endeavor. We're also going to look at some research in the session on 
a negative selection into virtual schools. And so what what that essentially means is uh, there there is some fair evidence that when you have a student who's being bullied in their brick and mortar, really struggling, uh, maybe the student has a uh, a particular disability, and it seems to be the case that these students who are are struggling in different ways are much more likely to gravitate to full-time virtual school. So we're also going to look at what are some of the selection dynamics into virtual schools so that we can try to understand the needs a little bit better and, and again, dig into this idea of what's necessary for success. So maybe some of the research is a little unfair because they're comparing virtual school kids to other kids, and yet these kids are very, very different, even if they might look they're like they're much the same. Really, if you knew them better, you'd, you'd see that they were uh, special cases. I think there's some fair amount of there's a fair amount of evidence suggesting just that, Paul. Well, one of the things that we're going to do on the second day is to look at education savings accounts, which have become extremely popular. If you look at the polling data on education savings accounts, they're just about the most popular school choice idea out there. And there's no sign that that popularity is uh, is evaporating as it's being uh, put into place around the country. And more and more states are adopting this, I think, in Florida and Arizona and uh, West Virginia and quite a number of other states, they are adopting these things. So what is an education savings account? I think essentially what is what distinguishes an education savings account and the, the laws, I should say at the outset, is that the, the nature of these laws vary, uh, varies quite a bit across states. Uh, but um, at, its, at their core, um, if you pull your, if you want to pull your child out of the district-run public school, you'll get a percentage or a proportion of your child's per-pupil funding put into an education savings account that can then be used for that. You can then use that money to uh, pay for the child's uh, education at a private school or a mix of different educational services. So you may decide to do a little bit of private school, maybe you'll purchase some curriculum, maybe you'll purchase a course at a local community college. So I think what really differentiates them, say, from a tax credit scholarship or a voucher is that you can use the money to purchase a, a combination of services. Now, based on the evidence we have, it seems to be the case that most families who use an ESA will simply use it all for uh, their, so that their child can attend a private school. But there's also um, a fair amount of evidence that maybe a quarter of families use ESAs to purchase a, a mix or a combination of different private services. And that can vary greatly depending on the needs of the child. So there's uh, in Arizona, for example, uh, there's an education savings account that that's uh, focused on uh, students with disabilities. And so uh, the family might decide to pull their child out of the public school and then purchase a range of different services for the child that might include different special education therapies or um, various sorts of services that might support that child. So um, that's basically what an education savings account is. Well, every state invents an education savings account that it wants to have, and there's a lot of variation out there. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to discover as we dig into this topic is that coming up with one definition of education savings account is not what the states are doing. They're coming up with many different approaches, which is a good thing, perhaps, to find out which of these approaches actually 
uh, works the best. Now, we do have a session devoted to classical charter schools. So again, I want to ask the question, what is a classical charter school? Uh, why do some schools uh, like that uh, self-definition and how are they distinctive? Yeah, so I, I think the, the obvious answer is in the name that the, the classical charter school will focus more on providing a, a classical uh, education. Um, and so I, th I think that's the, the biggest distinction. I think the other thing to note with classical charter schools is that that's one segment of the charter school sector that seems to be growing quite a bit. So if you look at charter school growth, uh, virtual charter schools seem to be growing um, and classical charter schools seem to be another type of charter school that's growing within the charter school sector. And if you if you look kind of nationally at the charter school sector as a whole, um, there's a lot of models that you're not seeing. You're seeing a, quite a bit of stalled out growth at the moment, but not with classical charter schools. And there's a, a, a couple of organizations that are out there nationally right now that are authorizing a lot of classical charter schools. One of them is uh, Hillsdale College. So they have a big initiative right now where they're uh, authorizing and, and helping to found charter schools across the country. And so we're actually at, um, in our session on classical charter schools, we have uh, Kathleen O'Toole, who's gonna um, talk about what some of the work she's doing with Hillsdale to found charter, classical charter schools uh, across the country. Well, finally, we're gonna talk about artificial intelligence. And I don't think there's any idea out there that's driven me more crazy this past year than artificial intelligence. What is gonna happen in my classroom this fall remains to be seen. I think there's an awful lot of people out there who are asking themselves the same question, but this could be a boon to um, emerging forms. They may be find ways to use artificial intelligence that uh, really are incredibly appropriate to this particular sector. The more personalized they experience, maybe the easier it is to incorporate artificial intelligence into the learning process. So what are we gonna learn about that topic? Yeah, and so I, I would agree, Paul. It seems to be the case that a lot of emerging school models leaders have a pretty positive view of what AI can do for them. And I think, uh, that it can, they they would argue that what AI can do is open up lots of different types of curriculum that they wouldn't otherwise be able to offer to their students. And so I, I think that leaders of emerging models have a positive view, but I, at the same time, I think there are some questions about um, AI and um, you know how it might limit the learning process in in some ways. So where. You don't have the. I think one of the one of the big concerns out there is does it does it allow students to read deeply and and write and and think and kind of grapple with difficult difficult concepts in the same way uh, when you can just kind of plug in a question and have AI uh, 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 push out a an essay or information for you without maybe requiring you to do as much thinking. So what we've done with our session is to invite some a couple of emerging models leaders. Uh, to the session, who are more maybe more positive on AI, as well as um, as well as uh, a panelist who is not so positive on AI and who has a, a different perspective. And so, our plan with the session is to really consider what are some of the positive and positive and and negative arguments that are out there for AI and education, and try to understand 
uh, what are some of the what are some of the the questions going forward that that emerging models need to consider? Well, thank you, Daniel. I've been speaking with Daniel Hamlin, a professor of education at the University of Oklahoma. He's the co-moderator of a conference hosted by the Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance, which is entitled Emerging School Models Moving from Alternative to Mainstream. And it's being held Thursday and Friday, September 28th and 29th. You can read more about it at the uh, Harvard Program's website. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.